Harvest, it is just wonderful to be back with you. Thank you so much for being who you are. Um, I'm just here, and uh, I've been, we've been gone for three Sundays, and just sitting here without even talking with Karen, it's like, oh my, it's good to be home. It's good to be with you, and um, uh, grateful for Pastor Rob Besosa coming in uh, three Sundays ago and stepping in uh, uh, for me then. Uh, Karen and I have known Rob and Mary for nearly 20 years now, and uh, I will tell you, Rob is probably the best discipleship counselor I've ever been around, and um, just uh, so grateful for him and in my life and even in our family's life over the years. I'm remembering a statement from listening to his sermon that uh, life pressures have a way of calling us inward, but the gospel calls us outward. Life has a way of drawing us in, but the gospel calls us out. That's going to have application for today as well. Also grateful for Pastor Eric two Sundays ago, as I listened to that sermon and remembering from him, uh, God is the one that builds his church. And we need to be reminded of that. God is the one that builds his church. And uh, we must, therefore, keep the main thing the main thing. And that has implication for what we're talking about today, to be thankful, not critical, and grateful for Pastor Eric. And then uh, last Sunday, pa- uh, Pastor Nate and uh, the pufferfish. Uh, I, I heard about it and, and listened to it. And um, Hey, we have freedom in Christ. And we have amazing freedom in Christ, yet our freedoms are rightly limited by love. As he talked about how edification takes preference over our freedoms because uh, we are together people. And um, grateful for those men coming over the past weeks. And I'll just kind of let you know, it allowed me to, uh, three Sundays ago, to be able to preach down at our plant on the south side of Indianapolis in Greenwood and just be a part of that, those two services down there. And I'm telling you, God is at work. It was, Karen and I were there and, and I've told our church family, hey, some Sunday you need to go down to the south side and go to Harvest Indy South sometime. And so we were there and a couple of our families were there doing exactly that. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. You have to hear me again. And, uh, but uh, so grateful for what the Lord's doing there. And then Karen and I were able to uh, actually head out that week. And uh, every year, Harvest has a senior pastors and wives retreat and be able to be at that for three days and then be able to have four days um, off of some vacation. Went up to Flagstaff, where it was colder there than it was here, and uh, be able to stop in Sedona, where I was able to get this uh, VW van uh, Sedona shirt. It doesn't get much more hippie than that right there, friend. All over that one. I couldn't leave that. Um, and then uh, for me, it was really then after that, after that week, just a week of doing research for, I have another chapter with my doctorate of ministry due here on uh, uh, the irony of this. Next chapter is due April 1st. Um, I'll just, I'll leave it at that. Well, Today, uh, we are actually week number eight in our sermon series, Ready, Together, Go. Um, let me tell you a little bit about where we're headed with this, all right? So before we kind of dive into God's word, where I think some things are going. Today, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 11 here in a little bit. We're going to be kind of picking up off where Pastor Nate left off there. Uh, next Sunday, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, tremendous passage. I'm excited to be there. Together is not uniformity. Uh, it is uniquely united together. 
and we're going to be in that. Uh, then uh, the following Sunday will be in 1 Corinthians 13, love, love is the glue that holds it all together. I want for you to think of today and these next two, these are kind of a bundle. These are a triad together. They all roll into each other. They're all very important in many ways. Today is kind of setting up for the next two Sundays that we have. Then in April, I'm telling you, April is turning out to be even a bigger month than I had ever anticipated uh, with. And it's starting out... Um, I'll tell you more next week and the following week. I have some more information about this, but uh, not by plan, but just by God's uh, graciousness and, and gift to us. Uh, April 2nd, we are having uh, Dr. Erwin Lutzer, who's been the pastor of Moody Church for 36 years, is going to be preaching here on April 2nd. Um, it is a gift that is beyond, um, I'm super thrilled. Big Sunday that Sunday. Everybody say Big Sunday. So uh, come, bring a friend. Uh, we'll be telling more in the next two weeks exactly what's going on with that. Really excited about that. What a special, special man. Then April 9th, uh, we're going to be Second uh, Corinthians thirteen fifteen. It's going to be a test Sunday, a test Sunday. I know everybody loves tests, but uh, it's a really interesting passage. It says, test yourselves. And so we're going to do that. We're going to do that before Easter. And uh, that's going to be a big Sunday. And then Easter Sunday, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection. Uh, we're going to be having a Saturday night service, two Sunday morning services, and excited about that. Big Sundays in April. And uh, um, then after that, uh, Lord willing, uh, the plan right now is we're going to enter into the book of 1 Thessalonians and start going verse by verse through the book of 1 Thessalonians and picking up really the go component of our series that we have here. Well, that's kind of some where things are going, uh, what's taking place. And uh, so a question that could be had is, Pastor Doug, why this present sermon series? And you're probably asking that, so why don't you go ahead and ask that? <laughs> I'm really grateful that you asked that question, and I think that's a wise question to be asking. Why? Why? Well, here's my answer. Um, because I'm convinced that we as a church are really at a very critical juncture in what could be coming ahead for us. I think we are at a critical juncture in just where we're at as a church, and, and none of this is responding to issues I see, problems I see, but it's really coming out of this. Over the last recent years, uh, I've been doing a bunch of reading and actually a, a serious amount of observing of churches that are at our stage, at our size, churches that are uh, hitting that thousand person range. And especially when you add uh, younger churches, there's even an added dynamic to that. And there's an observation I just continue to be seeing, and it's this that when young churches hit this uh, size of church realm, they tend to lose themselves. They tend to lose themselves in themselves. And what I'm really referring about with that is I'm talking about church leadership. Church leadership, as the church grows to this kind of size, church leadership, uh, and sometimes, sometimes driven by the senior pastor, can be lose itself in itself. And by the way, it's not only church leadership, but it's also the church family can have a tendency to lose itself within itself as it gets larger and as God continues to provide blessing. And I'm just thinking when Pastor Rob said that life has a way of pulling us inward. The gospel calls us outward in all of that. And it's intriguing. Broken people just have a way of turning God's blessing in the wrong direction. And broken people just have a way of turning blessing into entitlement. Broken people have a way of turning blessing into we earned it. 
It's how we do it. That's why it's happening. And somehow we earned it. And broken people have a way of turning blessing into the enemy of together. And actually, together decreases. We tend to lose ourselves in ourselves with that. Therefore, because this is such a big deal to me right now with where we're at, and even I'll even refer to next Sunday in great part, just because of my wiring, because of my gifting, I am super concerned that we are not a church that loses ourselves in ourselves. We are not leadership that loses ourselves in ourselves. So we're taking these kind of three months, the beginning of this year, to cast a call and to provide some teaching. And what does it look like to be a church that really is together? And what are some core things about this? And as you can see on the screen, we've got ready, together, go. I'll just let you know, these three months really are not so much about the ready or the go. These three months really are about the together. We'll pick up the go aspect in First Thessalonians. But it's really about the together aspect of this that's so important. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. As I look at the ministry of Christ, I am convinced his ministry strategy was not to go fast, but was to go far. And that's why he brought men and women along to do it together. So we want to be that, right? We want to be that. Lord, I pray that would be the case. Would you help us? Man, you have given us so much blessing. It's just stunning. It's beyond our comprehension what you have done. Nine years ago, I was just hoping we'd have another Sunday. (laughs) And yet, uh, you've blessed us and you've provided for us and you've done many wonderful things among us. And God, we do. We pray for more. Not for ourselves, but for your glory. We pray for more in each of us. More growth. More maturity. God, we pray for more people to come to Christ, to understand what it is to have a real, vibrant, redeemed relationship in the Savior of the universe. God, we pray that you would help us to be a together people. We live in a culture that's so independent and so alone. But there is something marvelous about team. Something awesome about team. Something powerful about team. Something that is far better than ourselves in team. And you've called us to be a team. Help us. Build this church because it's your church. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, we began this series uh, with the theology of relationship. Let me remind us of that. Three things. God has ordained relationship. The triune Godhead was the one who designed relationship to take place. It wasn't a human idea. It wasn't a human established thing. The triune Godhead in perfect relationship designed us to be in relationship in the image of God. And God has ordained relationship. That's why relationship is really important. Second point that we learned was sin has broken relationship. 
I mean, God created it, but sin came in and brokenness. Have you ever wondered why the world is so broken? Have you ever wondered why our homes are so broken? Uh, Answer, because sin entered the picture and brings separation and brokenness. That's a core theology of relationship, marriage, everything right there. But there's a third out of that because one of the responses can be is like, oh, it's so broken, it's just useless. No, the third thing is that God has called us to relationship. It's to know he's ordained it. It's to know that sin is brokenness. And it's also to understand that God has called us to relationship with him and with others. With him and with others. And today, we're building off of this, and the thing I'm hitting on, as you can see in your sermon notes page, together without friction is not together. Together without friction is not real together. (laughs) Pastor Doug, that's a weird title. Uh, Something just doesn't sound right about that. I mean, uh, what's up? Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're just going to spend a moment there. Pastor Eric had explained that well for us, but I just want to point out one thing here that fits with what we're talking about today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. By the way, as you're turning there and getting in there, uh, how do you know if something is for real? How do you know if something really is the real deal? How do you know if something is actually what it says that it is? Answer, you test it. You press it, you push into it. You, 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 if it says this is what it is, let's push it and find out. And if it isn't, we can expose what needs to be strengthened, what needs to be rewired and helped. Well, Paul makes an appeal here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. I could say there's three things here that Paul is appealing for. Number one, he's appealing for agreement. By the way, if someone is appealing for agreement, it assumes the potential for disagreement. Because otherwise, why ask for it? Okay, so next he says, I appeal for no divisions. Wait, likewise, the appeal for no divisions implies the potential for divisions. And then the third thing, I'll term it, he appeals for a same mind unitedness. Well, that also assumes the potential for disunified mindedness. But that's his appeal. So how is the local church in Corinth doing on these three? Uh, appeal for agreement, appeal for no divisions, appeal for same mind unitedness. How, so how's the First Corinthians church doing in this? Um, oh, for three, like whiff, whiff, whiff. Uh, they are out. Uh, oh, for three on this. But if Paul's appeal was, hey, listen, I appeal that you live together with bad doctrine, and I appeal that you live together with bad practices, and I appeal that you live together with a bad testimony, they're three for three home run, baby. That was the church in Corinth, as sad as that is. But that's his appeal. Now, you look at chapter three, and already Paul is noting that they're 0 for three. There's already divisions going on with it. They had lost themselves in themselves. The truth of the matter was, 
God had brought blessing to this church in Corinth. And they had come to, as I'm terming it, lost themselves in themselves. And this church that was a blessing from God had become a bad testimony of what God's people should be looking like. With that in mind, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Chapter 11, where we're going to be parking here for a bit. And here in chapter 11, Paul makes a most intriguing statement we'll get to here in a minute. Context, as I've said, is this is a church that has big divisions and bad doctrines. And they're living that out well, sadly. And so Paul's been addressing these various kinds of things. So many of them, by the way, are pragmatic philosophy of ministry issues, I might call them today. And so here we come in verse 11, chapter Uh, I'm sorry, verse 17, chapter 11. Let me start there. Paul says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better, but for the worse. Interesting. I mean, I thought that when God's people come together, that's always a good thing. No. Not here. Paul is actually saying their coming together is actually for the worse of what's taking place. How can God's people come together and it not be a good thing? Well, I could simply say when their coming together doesn't become about the Lord, it becomes about themselves. They're kind of coming together under the guise of the Lord, but really for themselves. Nothing's wrong with having things and, you know, getting to know people and, and, and nothing's wrong with all of that. But when, but when it comes to what's happening here in all of this, when it's really not about the Lord at all anymore, it's just about ourselves, themselves in it. I'll say this. Loved ones, holistically, across the globe, I'll take it wide, There's a lot of God's people gathering together that's for the worse. Doug, are you going to like narrow that in and tell who and how? No, 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 I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to leave the principle out. Because Paul is saying, listen, just because God's people gets to get together, it doesn't mean it's always for the best. Sometimes it can be for the worst because it brings out the worst in us. Also another statement. In recent decades, local churches have had a tendency to try and brand themselves as cruise ships, spiritual cruise ships. Come and we'll give you a riot of a time. Sometimes God's people can come together for the worse. Instead of God's people coming together to be doxologically driven, this is about the Lord and His glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, all should be for the glory of God. That's including God's people coming together. And here in it, it can be, where's the doxological drive of it all? Uh, Where's the great commission fulfilling a disciple-making, raising disciple passion going on in some of those things? Sometimes 
we can gather together, God's people can gather together, not as a powerhouses for the fame of the name of Christ, but for the fame of the name of ourselves. And actually, that's the context of what's going on here in Corinth. Church in Corinth, when you come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. Why? Verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it. I believe it in part. There's actually in the Greek a period right there on that, so I'm going to stop right there. Why is there coming together for the worse? Because they're coming together, they're actually coming together divided. Think about it. Let's come together and be divided. That's not supposed to be how that works, right? I mean, what an oxymoron just even in the terminology of it. And by the way, the immediate context of this coming out of verse 17, but in the following instructions and all that's coming, that this is being related to, this is coming out of the talk of what's taking place and having communion together. The Lord's Supper Communion, the Lord's Supper, is supposed to be a massive, God-ordained, the ordinance of the church thing to come together and unite, right? I mean, it doesn't matter what your background is. If you know Christ as your Savior, come together. And we will remember the, the body and the blood of Christ and how it makes us all even at the foot of the cross. Whether rich or poor, whether fit or not, whether short or tall, whether old or young, whether race or anything, whether all even at the foot of the cross. Communion is like the most uniting thing that God has put into place. But here they are coming together, as we'll read here in just a second here, they're coming together for this thing that is supposed to be uniting and it's actually dividing. Sin brings brokenness. That's what sin does. And friends, we are masters at it. We are masters at it. So what's going on here? Jump to verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead and with his own meal. <laughs> let, me, let me set a context here. All right. Uh, the Lord had said um, to, on a regular basis, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion, bread, remembering his broken body, and the, and the, the, the drink as his shed blood, and to re- use that as a remembering thing, of evening thing, of redeeming reality of what the Lord has done. A thing that they added to this, which is actually really, really cool, Back in the day, what they came and they added together this was a meal. And so whenever they would come and whenever they would celebrate to have communion together, they would have this meal together. In fact, Jude 11 uh, um, talks about this meal as well and, and, and in their taking it. And it's really a cool thing. It's basically, it's like a potluck. That's what it is. Everybody would bring all their food and their things to be able to be together and they would have this time of this love feast, this fellowship meal, and and they would gather together and the idea was out of communion, what a uniting time. So the wealthy brings it, the, the, the poor come and all join together in it. 
How cool is that? I love that. Love that. In fact, I will tell you, I remember in the very beginning as a church, I had thought, man, would that not be cool if we could be able to do that as a church? And whenever we have communion uh, on our cycle of having communion together with that, we could have a meal together. And it's like, yeah, but we're in a theater and they're not too keen on that. There's not enough outlets to plug all those potluck things in. And it was kind of hard, and now it's just getting to where it's, it's just too large. And yeah, yeah, I don't know, maybe someday we could do that. I think it's really cool, but here's what's going on. The whole thing, keep reading. For in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Verse 22, what? <laughs> do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. (laughs) No, I will not. Communion and this added fellowship meal love feast turned into a frat party. Turned into a social status party. Where the wealthy would bring their gold-plated potluck crockpots, and they would be over in that part of the building, and the poor would come in and have nothing over there, and instead of coming together, it actually divided. Then they're getting hammered. Like, what's the deal with this? What you consume controls you. And it was not the Spirit of God. Paul is like, I'm done with your frat party. There's no gathering in the name of the Lord for the fame and of the Lord. There's no real together in this. There's no uniting in this. There's no loving one another in this. And therefore, there's no commending in this. By the way, I skipped the very intriguing verse. Let's go to verse 19. Let me actually pick up verse 17 and read into it. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, verse 19, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Oh, this is, this is like the, one of the most odd verses in the Bible. It is literally Paul is saying, listen, there must be factions. There must be schisms. There must be differences, differences among you. Well, let's work this out here. He says, for there must be. It is necessary. It is, it is a must-have thing in this. Um, then he says the word, and I have the English Standard Version, and as well as the New American Standard, New King James Version, have the word factions. The New International Version has differences. Uh, uh, I'm not with it on that. It, it gives an idea, but it holds it down too low. It's, it's kind of like, you know, I don't have as much hair. You have a lot of hair. We're different. No, it's deeper than that. Stronger than that. The King James Version has heresies. The Greek is heresis. Kind of sounds like heresies. Uh, doesn't it? 
Now let's talk about the word here for a second. What's the etymology of the word? What's the background of the word? Well, the word has been used for uh, back in that day, even before that day. It was used for division conflict. It, it became used more and more for the idea of flagrant heresy. Now, the uses of the word in Scripture, in Acts, it's used to refer to the idea of groups or divisions or parties or sects of like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and, and uh, so forth. And then Galatians 5.20 it's included in a list of things that are evil or wicked, idolatry, sorcery, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, and then this word, divisions, factions, we have in our English translations. And then Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1, he uses it to refer to destructive heresies. The context of this word, let's come into that here. The big context of what this is being used in is the fact of Jesus or Paul is speaking to a church of big divisions and, and bad doctrines. And uh, you go into the narrower, uh, more narrow context of it all, and, and I think Paul is really associating with pragmatic issues. I might say it this way I don't think Paul is so much addressing that they have a theology problem with what communion means, they have a pragmatic problem on what goes around. It. May I say this? Oftentimes in ministry and in churches, it's not even at times, it, sometimes it is, but it's not even at times the theological issues, it's the pragmatic doing issues that become the issues. That's kind of what's going on here in this in immediate context. I think verse 17 is tying what he's talking about to, towards the, the following instructions related to the idea of communion. So its etymology, its use is its context. Uh, this word has the ability to apply to both bad doctrines and bad practices. But I think in the immediate context, it's really carrying out this closer idea of the bad practices of God's people. They're not necessarily off on their theology, but their theology is not being lived out rightly. So that's why I've used the term friction. What's going on here? When broken people come together and interact, there is friction. When broken people don't come together, no need for friction. One more time. When broken people come together and interact together, there is friction. Going back to high school science. Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one man, so one woman sharpens another. When people come together and interact together, couples, thank you. Because all of this applies to marriage and work and so many things. Hey, if you don't want to have friction, go live in Sedona. <laughs> Far off where the scorpions and snakes are. When people come together and interact, yeah, but Pastor Doug, we're a couple that's in love. <laughs> Fool. <laughs> no, but we're broken. Think about it. Broken people 
have broken edges. And when broken people with broken edges come together, it's not even like this. It's really more like this. True? Marriages? Hey, friends, in marriages, this should give you great hope. For there must be factions among you. And I'm actually quite serious about that. And Paul is talking about this idea of he's coming together, and it's like, yeah, but his appeal, his appeal was no, you know, to have agreement, no divisions, and to have united minds. Yeah, 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 yeah. But how can you know that you have agreement? Or how, how, how can you have agreement without having friction? There's no need for agreement if there's no friction. You just exist. How can you have no divisions if you don't have division? How can you not have united minds if you have ununited minds? This is one of the things I think that God's people sometimes, we think both in relationship and marriage, relationship in church, it's like there should be no friction here ever. What? (laughs) Even when redeemed people come together, there is friction. Paul says, it's actually necessary. Hey, couples, if you're in a friction moment right now, rejoice. (laughs) God's at work. How can that be the case? How can that be the case? Let me pull this together in some pragmatics, okay? Let me kind of take it here from some pragmatics, all right? Number one. Um, Number one. Relationship friction happens. Relationship friction happens. Uh, disagreements, uh, differencing, differing preferences, divergent wants, hey, they happen. They happen. Where do you want to go to dinner? I don't know. That can turn into friction until someone gives in. <laughs> Why does it happen? Because we are unique people and broken people. Because we are unique people. By the way, I'm getting into next week. We are unique people and we are broken people. And that's what happens. Whenever you get two or more broken people together, you will have relationship friction. But I want for us to know this. If you know Christ is your Savior and you're redeemed in Christ, there will be a day. There will be a day when there will be no more relationship friction ever for all eternity. Oh, bring it on, Lord, right? But until that day, there is. Until that day, here's the cool thing. God is so big that God actually wants to and will use our brokenness ultimately for his glory and our good. And that's what Paul is really narrowing in on here with what's going on. He's first letting us kind of know here, hey, relationship friction happens. So I might say it this way. Hey, when relationship friction happens, are you surprised? Are you stunned? Are you like pushed off your bike? You shouldn't be. We're broken people. So we talked about this earlier in this series to get that out on the table. None of us are perfect. None of us have arrived. None of us are there. We're broken people seeking after the Lord. And the Lord is so amazing and so marvelous that God can use even our sinfulness ultimately for his glory and our good. 
How's that? Because number two, relationship friction reveals. It reveals. Let me read verse 19 again. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So what happens here? Well, relationship friction reveals relationship realities. In it, it comes back to saying, how do you know that something is real? Test it. Push into it. And in it, the Lord allows life to continue in ways for our good. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation with the Greek word could also be translated with the idea of no trial. No trial has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and will not allow you to be trialed beyond what you are able to bear. Know this, God will never allow anything into our lives that is too much for us to handle. And it's like, yeah, but right now, Lord, it's feeling like you did. I know, but in it, the reality is the Lord in his grace is allowing things to come into our life to push us, to mature us and grow us. Why? Because how do you know if something's maturing? Test it, push it, grow it, move it. Parents with kids, we get that. I mean, as our children are growing, what do we do? Sometimes we let them sit in it. I hope you do. Let them work it. Let them think it. Let them actually experience what a D is and how they have to give account for it. Don't cover them. Let them experience it. That's how we do life, and yet the reality is that is a way that God does work. By the way, Mark chapter 4, the parables of the four soils. The second and the third soil, they're tested. They have this Jesus moment, and in it, then all of a sudden, the, 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 the trials of the, of, because of the word of one of them, and then the other is the, the, the lust of the world is the other, and so they're kind of trialed in it. Why? To find out whether they're really genuine. I actually think in Mark chapter 4, soils 2 and 3 are not redeemed people, and that's the point that Jesus is putting on the table. He's showing that, yeah, you can give a Jesus shout out, but then when it really comes down to it, Jesus is not a part at all of what's going on. And your fruit shows the reality of the root. And that's why soil number four says that it produces a fruit fitting with the idea of salvation, as Scripture talks about. We also have the idea in Scripture, Matthew 13, the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds. They both look the same. How do you know which is which? You don't until they open up. They look the same in the day. And all of a sudden, it's when the grain showed itself, that's when you knew what was weed versus wheat. Also, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not the war within your own heart? Hey, listen, when we have fights, we should be asking the question, what am I wanting right now? What am I wanting right now? I'm just wanting them to do it my way. I'm just wanting peace right now. Peace is a good thing, but when I make peace my idol right at the moment, it's the wrong thing. And pressure pushes us and quarrels and fights. We need to be asking, what's going on in my heart? What am I wanting? Is this for the Lord's glory? How do I handle this? Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. Uh, stop going after the speck in your brother or your sister's eye. Go with the log in your own first. It's like, let's take a look at ours first. And that's the idea of it. Relationship friction reveals. And I think sometimes we don't want it to reveal about ourselves because it's not pretty. 
And sometimes it's hard to understand that, wow, I'm selfish. Wow, I'm angry. Wow, I'm critical. Wow, my expectations are like out of bounds. Wow, you fill in the blank. What does relationship friction reveal about you? And might I say, what does it reveal about us? Relationship friction happens. Relationship friction reveals. And really coming out of that is the last one. Relationship friction approves. It approves. How do you and I know whether we're the proven deal as a together kind of person? How do we know if we're really a proven together kind of people? Answer. Go through it. And let it be revealed. And then the idea is this idea will be recognized. It's kind of containing within this concept that then you'll know. You'll know who is really those who are committed to wanting to live in a doxological, God-pleasing kind of a way according to Scripture. And then you'll, uh, problems end up showing those who just want to be about themselves. And this frat church in, in Corinth, they just wanted to be about themselves. And Paul's like, listen, actually, factions among you can be a really good thing. In fact, he doesn't say it can be a really good thing. He says it must be something that's among you so that those who come out of it and, want, and, and help to reveal and to approve the reality of who each of us is and who we are. It's very easy for me to say, very easy for those of us who've been a part of this series to be able to say, we want to be a together people and to say we are a together people, but there's only one way will know if we are a together people and the way that we know we are a together people is when we hit a bump in the road together and continue on together. And sometimes there are things that it's time to get off that bus. Understand that sometimes God has left that church place and when God has left that place, I would say it's time to leave. And sometimes it can be for true theology issues, but there's a whole lot of gray stuff. Part of what I was going to do today was bring about four or five nuclear bomb items that commonly divide churches. I'm going to save it for a couple weeks. (laughs) Because I think we just need to come to understand there are things that I'll call our pen theology issues. The virgin birth. There's no giving ground on that. The deity of Christ. No giving ground on that. But I will also tell you this. There are a whole lot of pencil theology issues. When's Christ coming? Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pan-trib. It'll all just pan out. And people will divide over that. And I will just say, I don't think that's a divide issue. And this is the kind of thing that, friends, I just want for us to be able to know at this point and bring to the table. Hey, sometimes God's people, not because there's something going on. I, if there is, I don't know about it. Now is the best time to bring these things up. 
Now's the time to put them on the table to help us to understand, hey, when friction things take place, when they will take, and they will, they will. I don't know what it'll be, but they will. And by the way, I want for you to know, as pastors, you know, we're not all the same. Sometimes we have some different thoughts on it. And as elders, it's sometimes the same kind of thing. We push, and, and yet it's like, wait, wh- wh- what are we learning? How can we learn? How can we grow together? How can we come together? How can we be a together people for God's glory? And what are things that we need to stand in and what are things that we need to, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, submit to one another in? Together people will, must experience relationship friction because you really don't know if you're real deal until that happens. Let's pray. Lord, I, uh, in fact, church family, I'll just, as we're closing up here, D.L. Moody said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. By God's help, he said, I aim to be that man. I'd like to change that. Might instead I say, the world has yet to see what God can do with a local church fully consecrated to him. By God's help, we aim to be that church. I'll just say imagine. Imagine a people of God where uniquely united together is a proven reality. Imagine a people of God where faith Hope and love are brought together for real. I mean, imagine a a, a people of God where grace abounds and is poured out on one another. Imagine a people of God that gathers together where love and respect are freely given. Where submission to one another is our first response where personal holiness is sincerely pursued together, where sin is addressed with love and humility, not as sin police, but as broken brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh, I want to go to that place where failures are met with abundant forgiveness where the weak and the hurting meet real Christ-like compassion, where those without Christ are amazed and drawn. By the way, friends, might I say, the most powerful evangelistic tool that can ever take place is God's people acting like God's people. That's what was taking place in Acts. Yes, the word of God was preached, but God's people were unlike any other people together. Oh, a people where relationship friction happens and reveals and approves them. Oh, a place where the fame of the name of Christ is their united pursuit. Where leadership loses itself in Christ and where God's people lose themselves in Christ versus themselves.
Imagine a people like that. Oh God, I pray that that would be just a growing desire in our hearts. God, we live in a culture to where the going to get the gathering of knowledge is the pinnacles of success. And instead, God, as I see your scripture and as I see you calling your people, it is not just knowledge that is the end item. It is the together of people that is the thing. And when broken people come together, even redeemed in Christ, friction happens. Whether it's personality, whether it's by gifting, whether it's by just our economic differences, our social status differences, oh God, I pray that you would be the one at the center of all this pray we would be so engrossed by who you are and the fact that you called us to be a people for you that you would blow our minds and that God we would raise up to be a people that has an impact beyond these walls that can only be explained by a God that is alive and real and at work in a humble submissive loving together people So reveal in us, Lord, what we need to change and grow in. God, might I even pray, reveal in us the approval of our desire to be a together people. Show us more of you, Lord, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.